You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. Today's gospel is the third in a set of three parables found in the 15th chapter of Luke. And each of those stories is about lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a son. And Luke intends that we would read the three of them together. And the chapter introduces the parables with a setting for us so we know what is going on. You see, there were tax collectors and there were sinners coming near to listen to Jesus. And when Luke says coming near to listen, we understand what that means, that it is a sign of repentance and conversion. They're not merely coming for a show or to stand on the sidelines. They are coming to Jesus to listen and become part of this kingdom movement that Jesus is leading. In response to the kinds of folks that were gathering around Jesus, the religious folk begin to grumble about the company he keeps. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that word welcome implies seeking out. And we might imagine we would find Jesus at the local pubs in town, a place where all sorts of folks gather, the acceptable folk and the not so much. And Jesus hears their grumbling, and in response to their grumbling, he tells these three stories. First, he says, consider for a moment that you are a shepherd and you have 99 sheep and one of them wanders away and the 99 are with you. Which one of you doesn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after that one that is lost until it is found? Now imagine the crowd stops for a moment to consider this scenario and then together says, well, not me. 99 sheep left to their own devices? That's reckless. It's far better to sacrifice the one that wandered off for the good of the many that are safe. I mean, after all, hasn't Jesus ever heard of little Bo Peep? I mean, she lost her sheep. She didn't know where to find them. But everyone knows if you leave them alone, they'll come home and they'll bring their tails behind them, right? But Jesus, the good shepherd, invites us to imagine ourselves as a reckless shepherd, risking all for the one that was lost. And then to top it all off, after he lugs that lost one back home to the fold, that shepherd calls for a huge neighborhood block party to celebrate the homecoming of that one lost sheep. Or in the second story, Jesus says, imagine that you are a housewife who, having lost a silver coin in the house, does a floor-to-ceiling cleaning until she finds it. 
And I understand her plight. I'd clean and clean until I found that coin too. And the first thing I'd do once I found it was put it in a safe place so that it doesn't get mislaid again. But that's not the story that Jesus tells. Once that precious coin is found, the woman calls for, yeah, you guessed it, a block party. Just like that foolish shepherd. And she invites all the neighbors and she spends that coin that she spent all that time looking for and then some on a celebration. What's the sense in that? In John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And one scholar reflecting on this second parable wonders if he might also have said, I am the good housewife, but folks were too scandalized to write it down. I mean, what housewife, having found money that was lost from the vacation jar, grabs more of her savings and throws a big shindig to celebrate? It does not make sense. Which brings us to our third parable. And we know it as the parable of the prodigal son, although it's important to know that the word prodigal doesn't appear anywhere in the story. Prodigal is from the Latin word with a root meaning of lavish, which we can admit sounds a bit like that young son who rushes off on his own. But the word prodigal is in addition to this story. And now we instinctively view the parable through that lens. We think it's called the prodigal son story, so there must be a prodigal son in it, and it must be the lavish one, the younger one. After all, it's the younger one who insults his father by asking for his inheritance while his father is still alive. Who does that? In a real way, he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. And with this demand, he burns his bridges behind him, choosing to sever his relationships with his father and his brother in one selfish act. And the surprise of the story is that the father agrees to it. He divides the property between the two boys. He acquiesces to this insult. And we see the younger son in the story, as one scholar puts it, seemingly to be highly skilled in playing his old man like a fiddle. Well, the young son has no financial planner to guide him, and so he soon spends up all his fortune and ends up on a farm in the middle of a famine, tempted to eat the slop that he was feeding to the pigs. Eventually, we know, he makes his way home, and he's warming up his father fiddle playing. He's practicing his words carefully on his way back. He's sounding out the words which he will offer to his old man, trying to get just the right inflection. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That'll work. The great theologian Paul Tillich wrote in the margin of his Bible next to the parable of the prodigal son this comment. When the prodigal came home, I hope he didn't stay too long. But all of his rehearsing of his lines is for naught, for the father has been keeping watch on the road, just in case this day might be the day when his son would come back home. 
And when he sees him from afar, the old man throws off any semblance of respectability and he runs down the lane and he scoops up the boy in his arms and he waves off his son's attempt to speak and sends the boy in to wash up with a brand new set of clothes, the finest sandals in the house to replace his filthy work clothes, and then a new ring for his finger to mark his place in the family. And then... It's that same father who calls for, a, you guessed it, a block party, a celebration. He pulls out all the stops with a fatted calf and all the family favorites on the table. It is an unconditional welcome which this father offers the younger son, the son who has brought shame on the family, not once, but twice. First, in his rude demand for his inheritance, and secondly, in his failure abroad. But the father ignores all of the social expectations, and he embraces his wayward son without expectation of repentance from him. You see, everything the father does is an act of restoration for the family. In the exchange of the clothes, in the gift of the ring, in the setting of a party, the father seeks to lift the burden of shame which the younger son carries. The father acts intentionally for liberation, removing any barriers which might have kept the son from full restoration. The scholar Northup Fry reminds us of a theme woven through many stories in the Hebrew Bible that the passing over of the first son, who normally has the legal right of primogeniture in favor of a younger son, is a major theme. So we think of Cain and Abel, or Jacob and Esau, or Isaac and Ishmael, Joseph and all of his brothers, David, the youngest of his. One might think that much of the Old Testament was written by the youngest children. I mean, they're always getting first billing. They're always taking the best for themselves. They're always getting more than their fair share. There is a clear biblical bias towards younger siblings, says I, the youngest of four, which leads us to the older son, who coming back from yet another day at, the wor at work in the fields catches a whiff of roasted calf and hears the sound of laughter and music which stops him in his tracks. And when he discovers that his wayward brother is back and that his dad is throwing a party for him, he plants his feet firmly outside the house, refusing to go in. I mean, really, who can blame the older son for a little resentment? He's played by the rules. He's done everything asked of him. He's made all the good for the family choices required of him. And meanwhile, his good-for-nothing younger brother waltzes in like nothing had ever happened after throwing away all of his money. It's not fair, after all. He sees his father once again, just like before, rescuing his younger brother from the consequences of his bad choices without his brother learning a single lesson, without offering any repentance, expressing remorse, or at least putting in a little bit of hard work on the farm to earn his keep. 
And then the father, when he hears his elder son will not come inside, goes outside to him and pleads with him to come in. And in response, what does the elder son do? Well, he airs a list of grievances. Pointedly, he does not use the word father. Nor does he refer to himself as a son, but as a slave. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You see, the relationship between the father and the older son is fractured too. And that brokenness extends to his younger sibling, whom he calls this son of yours. And it's there outside the house as the older brother stands just outside the party looking in not with joy or with welcome but in anger that we begin to see the older son is just as lost as his younger brother once was which brings brings us back to the idea of the prodigal the lavish what if this parable is indeed a story of lavishness, not in the lavish living of the younger son in a far-off land, but in the lavishness of a father who spreads out his arms wide to embrace the son who has wandered off and the one whose heart has hardened with years of resentment. It's the prodigal father who pours out grace upon grace until it is overflowing. It's God who searches for the lost sheep, who scours the house for the lost coin, and then rejoices, not just a little bit happy, but in an all-out, no-holds-barred celebration, a barn burner of a party. In these parables of lost things, Jesus asks his hearers to imagine the unexpected, that celebrations break out when the lost are found, and that no one, no one is outside of the grace of God, wayward sheep and stubborn sons. Amy Jill Levine, reflecting on these stories, writes, quote, Go celebrate, and then invite others to join you. And if the repenting and the forgiving come later, so much the better. And if not, you still will have done what is necessary. You will have begun a process that might lead to reconciliation. Now, the church through the centuries has done a spectacular job at underscoring the importance of repentance. And we have also acquired an unfortunate reputation for cultivating shame in those who have fallen short. The parable of the prodigal father invites us to let go of that theology of shame and to take up what the theologian Miroslav Volf calls a theology of embrace. A theology of embrace. We are called to love in the same way in which the prodigal father loves, embracing the long lost son and calling the elder son back into community, saying, all I have is yours. Richard Rohr describes this as, quote, the way of compassion, forgiveness, and patience. You realize that your chosenness 
is for the sake of letting others know that they are chosen too. These parables speak a word of grace to tax collectors and to sinners, to those who have wandered off and whose brokenness is on the surface for all to see. And for them, the stories are about the lost being found. But for us religious folk, those of us who can't consider ourselves found, these stories are learning about how to rejoice at God's amazing grace. A grace for those who know they're lost and for those who can't imagine themselves outside. For in the realm of God, which Jesus is bringing into the world even now, lostness is not the final word. God's grace seeks us out, and it is a prodigal grace that will not let us go. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time. Be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.